Hello and welcome to Stephanomics, the podcast that brings the global economy to you. Governments have spent a lot of money in the past few weeks. In the US alone, the headline number is well over $2 trillion. In a country that we already thought was spending well beyond its means. In a minute, I'll be talking to the economist Stephanie Kelton, an advisor to Bernie Sanders, among others, about whether COVID-19 has turned President Trump into a modern monetary theorist. Keep listening to find out what that means. But first, I welcome back to Stephanomics our chief economist, Tom Orlick, for a few words on the scale of those stimulus programmes. Tom, I I did talk a little about this last week with the American economist Adam Posen, but give us a sense of the numbers that we're talking about uh, when we look at the governments of G20 economies, their response to the virus, and you know what kind of superlative adjectives should we be using to describe them? There's a lot of money going into the system, Stephanie. Um, when we look at monetary policy, the Federal Reserve has followed the ECB and the Bank of Japan down to the zero lower bound. Central banks around the world are pumping huge amounts of additional funds into the system through asset purchases. That's important for financial stability. But the critical thing to compensate businesses and households for the income they're losing during the lockdown and hopefully prepare the ground for a recovery once the outbreak is under control in the second half is what's happening with fiscal policy. Normally, fiscal policy is pretty slow. Political conflict, debt levels, they all stop fiscal policy reacting quickly. This time round, Governments really seem to have got their acts together pretty quickly, and we're looking at huge sums going in. We added it up across the G20, and it came to about $1.8 trillion uh, in fiscal stimulus. A lot of money. You say that it's unusual because of the pace. I guess it is true that it often takes a while to pass fiscal programmes, but the complaint in the past has often been that you pass the programme and then it may take a year, even two years sometimes, for these stimulus programmes to actually be affecting things on the ground. How how much can we judge that now, looking at these programmes? Why are they more likely to get into the economy in this very short period that they're actually needed? Yeah, I, I really think that detail and precision, in a sense, is the enemy. And what has to happen for these to be effective is just a lot of money to hit roughly the right parts of the economy really quickly. And so the concern has to be, yes, the headline amounts are eye-popping, but is that all new money? And is it getting to the people who need it quickly enough? Uh, And of course, here in the United States, we're already hearing small businesses saying, I put my application in, I haven't heard back from the bank, I haven't heard back from the Small Business Administration. If it's a one-week delay, a two-week delay, fine. I think businesses are going to have the reserves to get through that. If we're looking at two, three months before the money starts getting into people's bank accounts, then we're going to start seeing lots of bankruptcies, and that's going to make the recovery much harder, even when the outbreak is under control. Yes, the speed is so much more important in this case because the extent of the decline has been so rapid if you, and, and it's so serious for so many companies. You know, if you think of a the worst recession a company might have seen, they might have seen demand fall by 20 or 30%. But in many cases, we're looking at 
80, 90, 100% falls in demand because governments have shut down those parts of the economy. Do you think that has affected the very unusual nature of this, where governments are in effect doing this on purpose? Has that affected the amount of political debate around these stimuluses? I mean, it is surprising uh, how broad the agreement has been on this kind of scale of support. I think there's a degree of political self-interest at work here, Stephanie. Um, If we think about the kind of the main advocates of austerity, the main sort of advocates of fiscal conservatism, it's the Republicans in the United States, it's the Conservative Party in the United Kingdom, and they're in power right now. So it's absolutely in their interest to forget about those principles uh, and just pump as much money into the system as they can. Um, at the same time, uh, I think you're right. It's the it's the nature of the shock which has changed the debate about fiscal stimulus. Um, if we go all the way back to the Great Depression in 1930, there's that famous quote from the Treasury Secretary, Andrew Mellon, liquidate labour, liquidate stocks, liquidate farmers, liquidate real estate, purge the rottenness from the system. That was what Mellon advised uh, Hoover, who at the time was the kind of the hapless president trying to deal with the, the biggest economic shock in, um, in memory. Um, and that sort of philosophical view that recessions are in a sense a good thing because they cleanse rottenness from the system and prepare the economy for growth, that view has really lived on. And there's an element of truth in it. In the great financial crisis, in the European sovereign debt crisis, there was some rottenness in the system. uh, And so there needed to be some bankruptcies in order for growth to to restart. This time round, that's really not the case. This is a pure exogenous shock. This is a virus that has hit an economy which is otherwise functioning okay. So the idea that the recession is in some sense going to be cleansing uh, just really doesn't apply. And and I think that's one of the reasons why we've seen political parties and politicians um, that in the past have been viscerally opposed uh, to any sense of fiscal stimulus now embracing it. I guess the final question I would have for you is we had we've debated, I think, previously on Stephanomics, and it's certainly been a big conversation point over the last few years, this idea that policymakers wouldn't have room uh, to respond to the next crisis, the next downturn, you know, that monetary policy was kind of maxed out or almost maxed out, you know, interest rates incredibly low, central bank balance sheets already very expanded following the printing of money um, over the last few years. Um, and, you know, in the case of the US, a budget deficit was already quite high. I mean, were we just wrong when we said that? How have they come up with all this money and why does it not seem to matter? If we look at the economic textbooks, there are some extremely powerful arguments uh, against what's what's happening right now. If we have central banks printing money to stabilise borrowing costs, to enable governments to run very, very large fiscal deficits, then in the medium term, in the long term, that's not going to be sustainable. The market is going to start worrying about inflation and central banks, no matter how much money they print, are just not going to be able to keep bond yields under control. In the situation right now, those textbook concerns in the extremity of the moment are being disregarded. That's absolutely the right thing to do. We need an extraordinary fiscal response. We need central banks to be playing that supportive role. 
if the outbreak doesn't come under control quickly, if this is still the situation in six months' time, I think we're going to see some really serious questions about whether this policy response is actually sustainable. And I'm sure we'll have uh, more conversations about this and other aspects of the virus and maybe talk more uh, on another occasion about all the great research that your economists are doing. But for the meantime, uh, thanks very much, Tom Orley. Thanks, Stephanie. So I'm very glad to be joined by Stephanie Kelton, who's an American economist, currently a professor at Stony Brook University, but also a frequent contributor to The New York Times and a columnist for for Bloomberg. She also has been an advisor to, to Bernie Sanders, including in his 2016 presidential campaign. Stephanie What do you think of the policy response to the virus so far? I I read something of yours that was written before uh, Congress passed that massive uh, stimulus package. Have they gone further than you might initially have expected? I I don't think so. I mean, I know, you know, they moved in rapid succession with a series of bills. The first one was very small, $8.3 billion followed by uh, another piece of legislation, a little over $100 billion. And then the most recent one, what's being called phase three, which was $2.2 trillion. So, you know, these sound like very big numbers. And of course, they're orders of magnitude larger than what we did in the wake of the financial crisis and heading into the Great Recession. So by comparison, they, they seem quite substantial, I don't think I've been surprised, though. I think there's just a greater appreciation now for just what we're up against and that Congress came through with something that was substantial. But already, of course, they're talking about the need to do more. And how do you think the U.S. compares with with other countries in terms of the scale of their response? But I guess I'm thinking particularly about uh, how it's been allocated, what bits of the economy are getting the most help. Well, that's exactly right. I think that, you know, I'm doing my best to try to pay attention to the policy response in other corners of the globe. And from what I can tell, what we have done that I think was critically important was trying to keep workers attached to their jobs. That is to keep them on payroll, to keep them employed, even as we require them to stay out of the workplace. So that's part of what we've attempted to do with the payroll protection program, uh, the lending to small businesses. The problem is that the rollout has been, let's say, spotty, and uh, the help isn't getting there quickly enough. Millions and millions of people, we've already seen 10 million workers lose jobs just in the last couple of weeks. And so I look at what some European countries uh, appear to be doing more successfully in terms of keeping workers on payroll, attached to their uh, employers, getting money into their hands more quickly, even just north of the border here in Canada, you know, when people are being laid off, they're able to call a toll-free number and within a matter of days, they're getting the money in their hands. And we're just not, we're not so good at speed right now. And unfortunately, speed is critically important. Well, of course, but that's one of the things that we're obviously trying to track, not just the economists, but the, the reporters at Bloomberg. You know, there's a, a lot of these programs, particularly the European ones, sound fantastic in terms of what they're trying to do. But then obviously it's going to be crucial as they get up and running. And sometimes there's a big been a delay in getting them up and running uh, to see whether people are actually getting the support they need. 
You've had some uh, spirited debates over the last few years with the likes of Paul Krugman on uh, modern monetary theory, MMT, which was talk- being talked about a lot one or two years ago. Um, as some people have said to me, oh, we've ended up with that the virus is actually giving us MMT by the back door, this, this enormous running up of, of, of deficits. Um, remind us what, how you would understand modern monetary theory and then say whether, you, whether that's right, whether we have gone quite a lot closer to MMT with this response. Well, remember that MMT is, has always been, now for more than 20 years, uh, a descriptive project. And so what we've been trying to do is describe the monetary operations, the system that we have in place, how it works, what it means to have governments that issue non-convertible fiat currencies. That is, we're not on a gold standard. We don't have a fixed exchange rate regime. Certain countries are issuers of what we could call a sovereign currency. And as a result, there is more policy space available to countries like that than they typically take advantage of. So one of the lessons of MMT has been that in a country like the US, like the UK, like Japan, like Canada, like Australia, and other sovereign currency issuing um, governments, that countries have actually been living below their means. I mean, we hear time and time again that deficits are evidence that governments are living beyond their means. And MMT has said, no, hang on, that's not correct. Most of the time, we run our economies below their full potential, below their full employment capacity. In other words, there's low-hanging fruit. There is space for fiscal policy to do more to push economies to something closer to an approximation of full employment. And so what we're seeing now is, you know, the complete falling away of the preoccupation with deficits and debt, with the idea that the deficits that we've run in the past and the national debt that exists going into a crisis somehow constrain or hamstring governments and prevent them from exercising the power of the fiscal purse, if you like, in times of crises. And so MMT was always out there saying, uh, where others were warning, that because of things like the Republican tax cuts, which passed in December of 2017, there were plenty of economists at the time who argued that passing those tax cuts was going to leave us with budget deficits and a national debt that would prevent us from taking action in the future in the face of a crisis. And I and other MMT economists said that isn't the case. If the next downturn comes, when the next downturn comes, Congress will have all of the fiscal power it needs to combat the downturn in spite of the deficits that we have run in the past. Do you think that uh, President Trump is coming round to an MMT view of the world? I mean, if you think about uh, his his business career, one has the impression that he hasn't always uh, felt that budget constraints were going to be particularly binding on him in various ways. Um, you know, if we see this massive response and it doesn't seem to cause big problems for the economy and it does seem to be easily repaid. Uh, and the markets don't mind. Do you think if it does seem doable that he's going to come around to it and maybe uh, it'll be the way of the future? I feel reasonably confident that he is going to be willing to go back to Congress again and again and again and do as much as necessary. You know, I heard him on television the other day and 
It didn't seem like a scripted comment, but he did say that the federal government is prepared to spend whatever it takes. These are the words he used because he said, it's our money. It's our currency. And that I've never heard from a president, not in my lifetime. And so I think there is something to what you're saying in terms of his ability to sort of connect the dots between the nature of our monetary system and why that affords the government the capacity to step up and spend again and again and again and to replace that lost demand until the economy is is recovering. I think that's a it's a that's a great way of of looking at it. I think I guess the final question I would have, and again, it it harks back to some of the things that people said in response to the last crisis and the quantitative easing and the money printing that happened then. You know, of course, people then warned of inflation as a result of pumping all this money into the economy. There's been no risk of that over the last few years. I just wonder whether you see any possibility. As we come out of this, if we do get quite a steep recovery, whenever it is, maybe later than we want, uh, and people have had their incomes maintained, but in a good chunk of that disposable income that they have, they've not been able to spend. Do you think there is a risk at that point that you could have at least some inflationary consequences from this stimulus, just because of the nature of the fact that a lot of people have been unable to spend as much as they normally would? You know, it's it's an interesting question, and I I don't know that I have very strong feelings. I think it's it is a potential risk, but I would highly discount it. And here's why: I think for a couple of reasons. One is that when we so-called turn the economy back on, we're not just going to flip a switch and everyone is going to immediately feel comfortable going back out into the shopping malls, into restaurants, into the movie theater. It's going to take time before we, even if we've got a stockpile of, of cash that we've been able to, you know, the disposable income that hasn't gone to servicing debt, we've got some, some purchasing power pent up. We're not prepared, I think, in mass to go out and just wildly spend And so that's one thing that I would think about. The other thing is QE itself. Remember, QE QE is not a risk. QE is not pushing money into the economy per se. QE is pushing money into the banking system. So it's more about um, adding reserves to the banking system where they remain trapped until they're taken out either by the Fed or by Treasury. So I just don't see as much potential inflation risk. If we destroy productive capacity and we allow factories to shutter and businesses to shutter, then we're at greater risk, right? Because we're not going to be able to step up with the supply and the production to meet higher demand on the other side of all of this. Stephanie Kelton, thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. Finally, I just wanted to check in with Sean Donnan, our senior trade and globalisation reporter here at Bloomberg, to see how his life has changed since we last spoke on this programme at the start of the year. Sean, the biggest threat to global supply chains for the past two months hasn't been trade wars that we talked about so much last year, but the much more immediate problem of closed down factories in China and closed ports. You've been looking at that in the last few weeks, but I see you've also been zeroing in on much more basic food supply concerns for low-income Americans who've been losing their jobs in the last few weeks. So I'm interested, tell us a little bit about how the past few weeks have been for you as a reporter and and how have you found yourself moving from those big macro topics to those micro stories 
that are maybe hitting a little closer to home. Yeah, I, I think what's really amazing is that we've seen something that we, we haven't, uh, we hadn't even contemplated uh, last year during the trade wars, and that is that effectively governments would switch off economies. And we've seen that go in a wave through the global economy, right? So we saw other parts of Asia get hit, South Korea, Japan, places like Vietnam. Then we've seen uh, it come to Europe, Italy, which we've discovered actually has a pretty uh, important role even in some manufacturing supply chains uh, go into lockdown. Germany, the UK, and here in the US uh, as well. Increasingly, I've been finding... Um, that the real hole in, in I think, uh, the story is just a documenting of, of the micro damage uh, in, in, in economies. We write a lot about uh, forecasts from economists of a recession that will be the deepest in generations. We don't often quantify what that means for, for people on the ground. And so I've tried to switch uh, my focus in the last few weeks from that kind of lofty debate about globalization, which I think will be there six months from now when we come out of this this crisis, if that's when we come out of it, um, and really focus on what is happening now. And it's kind of the urgency of now, which is the economic damage that's happening. And you found a particularly striking example in really in the very close to the Trump resort in Florida of Mar-a-Lago. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So with some colleagues, we set out to uh, document how this was hitting working families uh, in America for a piece that we did for Business Week that looked in particular at the blue collar manufacturing economy. And what we discovered when we started calling around to some food banks and so on was that there was a huge spike in demand for help for food uh, supplies from people who had these paycheck to paycheck existences and suddenly had lost their jobs. And one particular place that we found where that spike was occurring was literally in the shadow of, of Donald Trump's uh, private club, Mar-a-Lago, in Palm Beach County, Florida, where a mile away, there's an outfit called Howley's Diner, w- where a uh, Uh, The owner has, for the past two weeks, been serving up thousands of meals a day to people who are laid off and hungry. And that is just a striking example, I think, of of the economic carnage, really, that's that's out there right now. And it illuminates some problems that we talk about often in, in a kind of again, at, at 30,000 feet of, of inequality and food insecurity and so on. But it's right there uh, in the backyard of one of the wealthiest enclaves in America. We will have plenty more to talk about in the next few weeks and months. But for the moment, Sean, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Stephanomics. We'll be back next week with more insight into how COVID-19 is affecting the global economy. In the meantime, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website app or wherever you get your podcasts. And for more news and analysis through the week from Bloomberg Economics, follow at Economics on Twitter. You can also find me on at my Stephanomics. This episode was produced by Magnus Hendrickson. 
Special thanks to Stephanie Kelton, Tom Orlick and Sean Donnan. Scott Lamman is the executive producer of Stephanomics and the head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy.